Welcome to Cooking the Books. I'm Vanessa, your host, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to another episode of Cooking the Books, kiddos. Sorry, it's been a while since I recorded last. I've actually been in the process of packing to get ready to move. And let me tell you something, it ain't fun. I think I read somewhere that public speaking, shopping for a car, and moving are the three things people dread the most in life. And I can say hand over heart that it's true. Now, in my case, it's a total pain in the ass because, as you might have guessed, I have a ton of kitchen stuff. We're talking kitchen appliances, gadgets, dishes, glassware up the wazoo. Well, I do have a weakness for beautiful glasses. And let's not even get into how many books I have. Seriously, I had to have donated five boxes of books to some little free libraries around town and I still have over a dozen boxes of books. Hardcover books, no less. I pity the furniture movers from the bottom of my heart. Anyway, I hope you are all keeping well as we continue trying to navigate these very difficult and scary times. I keep telling myself that this will be over someday, and I know it will be. The scary thing is that our world will be fundamentally changed from the way it was before. And though I think we needed a collective change in our society and culture, and although I do think ultimately we will be all right, it is still frightening to go through so many extreme changes. To top it off, the reason I'm moving is because, ta-da, I am actually buying my very first house. It's exciting and scary at the same time. I initially didn't want to do it and I've never really had any great desire to own a home. But like I was saying, things are changing in this world and the idea of having some sort of safe haven, some kind of security in a world of fear is appealing on many levels. So yes, it's a bit nerve wracking, but I also must say that I can't wait. And speaking of things that are scary, as I was packing my nine gajillion books, I came across one that I hadn't read in quite some time and that had a major impact on me. So let me ask you, when you hear the name Hannibal, what do you think about? Do you think about the ancient Carthaginian warrior? Me neither. Hannibal can only be one person and that is the big, bad granddad of serial killers, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, the psychiatrist turned cannibal, who is one of the main characters in Thomas Harris's iconic book, The Silence of the Lambs. So while packing, I found my copy of this book and made the mistake of opening it just to have a little dip and refresh the old memory. There I was four hours later, I'd reread it and was impressed yet again just how really creepy it is. Oh, Hannibal Lecter, probably one of my most favorite literary characters of all time, and definitely someone that I can relate to, on some level anyway. He's witty, he's cultured, and he lives by his own standards of conduct. He kills those who offend him, who offend his aesthetics, who offend his worldview, who are just plain rude. 
I have never killed anyone because of those reasons. Well, I've never really killed anyone. But can you imagine how long his list of potential victims was just using that criteria? I know mine certainly would be. What a lot of people may not realize about this book is just how innovative it was when it first came out back in the 80s. It combined some pretty new police procedural information, new at the time, mind you, with just sheer psychological horror and also some very pointed sociological observations about feminism. Let me explain. The book was made into a killer, yes, pardon the pun, film that in my opinion is one of the best book to screen adaptations ever made. When the author Thomas Harris was doing research back in the 80s, he actually was allowed to do some hands-on research into criminal profiling. Now, remember that at the time, profiling was still quite speculative and new, and many policing agencies didn't believe in it, much less use it. It was also around the time when the FBI was tracking Ted Bundy. Remember him? Now, if you know anything about this nutcase serial killer, it's that he faked injuries and wore a cast when asking his victims for help to gain their trust. Just like the character of Buffalo Bill in the book, remember how he got the senator's daughter in the back of his van? There you go. Something else interesting that I learned while researching this book is that Ted Bundy, while he was finally incarcerated on death row, actually helped the police profile yet another serial killer. Crazy, huh? Remember the Green River Killer? I think one of the things Bundy told the FBI was not to remove a body when they initially discover it because the killer would likely go back seeing the body as kind of his treasure or his prize. Definitely along the lines of when Clarice Starling goes to ask Hannibal Lecter for his help after he's already been captured and is in prison. The character of Buffalo Bill is also based on the real life killer Ed Gein who killed people to make himself a human skin. Now, if that's not gross, I don't know what is. And as an aside, Ed Gein was also the inspiration for the lovely character of Norman Bates in Psycho. Mother, my mother, uh, what a surprise. She isn't quite herself today. Thomas Harris is a brilliant writer. If you've read any of the books he's written, you will know this. In this case, he takes what is a traditional literary trope, the vulnerable young woman in a world full of men, and pits her against the superior intellect and cunning of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who interestingly enough, is not really the antagonist of the novel. Ultimately, Clarice Starling comes out on top in the end without having a white knight swoop in and save her from Buffalo Bill. She saves herself, with maybe a little help from the charming and deadly Dr. Lecter. It's definitely a feminist manifesto in many ways, particularly because Clarice is a female working in a very male-dominant world. Also because she spends much of the time fending off annoying advances from most of the male characters. And ultimately, because she's a badass and she accomplishes something that no man does, she takes on Buffalo Bill and wins. If that's not feminist, I don't know what is. One of the other things about this book that I liked so much, and I know I'm not alone in this, 
is the fact that Hannibal Lecter is just so damn charming. I mean, the guy is a serial killer in his own right, and yet you can't help rooting for him. It reminds me a lot of the book by Patricia Highsmith, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Same idea. Kind of a psychotic protagonist character, but you can't help but like him and want him to get away with it. I remember I originally read The Silence of the Lambs the summer after I graduated high school, and it was fascinating. And yes, that is going back quite a ways. I think most of us remember the movie much better, and it was a very faithful interpretation of the book, really only omitting the storyline involving Jack Crawford's wife, but pretty much staying true to the characters. I will admit, shamefacedly, that when I saw the movie, the scene toward the end when Clarice is being stalked in the pitch black basement did scare the ever loving holy Jesus out of me. And I ended up begging my grandmother to let me sleep with her that night. In the book, Dr. Lecter ends his first, though not last, visit with Clarice by telling her, a census taker tried to quantify me once. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a big amarone. Go back to school, little starling. No, not Chianti, as the film version iconically goes, but amarone. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. On a somewhat related note, I didn't realize that this post would fall so close to what would be my father's 73rd birthday. And in rereading it, I was reminded how poignant Clarice's memories of her father really are and how his influence truly colored her worldview and her career choices, as well as her interactions with people, much like my own father who died when I was quite young. I often think about how my life might be different if he had lived and been part of my adult life. Though I'm sure it would have been quite different in many ways, I like to think my cooking instincts would still have come out and I can visualize having him over for a home-cooked meal on his birthday. I miss my father terribly and nowadays in particular. Anyway, back to the food. Liver, fava beans. I pondered this interesting food combo until one night of insomnia gave me the inspiration I needed. Do you ever do that? Just lie awake and think about recipes and cooking? I didn't think so. Anyway, I guess I'm weird. <laughs> now, I've never been into organ meat until I tried chicken livers a few years ago, cooked in a sauce of butter and white wine and Vidalia onions. Wow, it was yummy. I like fresh fava beans too, though their, their flavor can be somewhat bland and it does take on the taste of whatever herbs and spices are mixed in. So I decided to try a different twist and create a chicken liver crostini with garlic, shallots, lemon, port, and our favorite doctor's fava beans in honor of the good Dr. Lecter. The result was nothing short of delicious. I paired it with a good strong red Amarone wine and I spread it on some crostini toasts. And it was a feast fit for a cannibal if I do say so myself. As far as the wine goes, 
Luckily, I am blessed with friends that have great connections in the liquor world, and I was able to get my hot little paws on two, count them, two marvelous bottles of Amarone, because they ain't cheap. So this is the method that worked for me. To start, you will need one cup of milk, full fat, one tablespoon of unsalted butter, one teaspoon of olive oil, one pound of chicken livers, and make sure they're trimmed of all those thin little white connective tissues, three slices of thick cut bacon cut into small pieces, six cloves of garlic, finely diced, two shallots, finely diced, one pound of fava beans, steamed and shelled, a half a cup of port or brandy, and I actually used a splash of Ruby's Infantile Port. Yummy. The juice of one lemon and a handful of fresh sage leaves. And this is what you do. You want to soak your rinsed and trimmed chicken livers in the cup of milk for at least two hours in the refrigerator and longer if possible. I've heard various takes on doing this, but for me, the soaking gives the livers a very silky texture and minimizes some of that gamey flavor that organ meat can have. So definitely do not skip this step. After a few hours, drain the chicken livers and pat them dry. Throw away the milk they were soaking in and heat the butter and olive oil in a large skillet over high heat. Cook the chicken livers gently, no more than three minutes, turning them once to make sure that they're cooked evenly. If they are still bloody, cook a little longer. Just keep in mind this is a bit of a delicate stage because you want the livers cooked through, but not so cooked that they're going to be tough. Then remove the livers from the heat and add the bacon pieces to the pan. Cook them until crisp and remove onto a plate blotting off some of the excess grease with a paper towel. Add the fava beans and the fresh sage leaves to the oil in the pan and give them a quick five to 10 minute saute, then remove them from the pan as well. Add your chopped garlic and shallot to the bacony oil in the pan and saute for another five to seven minutes. Then add in the port and cook it another 10. You really just want to minimize it and cook it enough for the alcohol to burn off. Then in a food processor or a blender, you want to finely mash the sauteed fava beans and the sage leaves and mix them with the chicken livers, the bacon, and the shallot garlic mixture. Then puree all together. You want kind of a thick mixture, but if you personally prefer a more smooth texture, process for longer. Definitely taste for seasoning, and this is where you add your lemon juice to flavor. And also you want to thin the mixture just a little bit. Chill in the refrigerator for up to an hour before spreading onto crostini. It's quite a rich puree, so little definitely goes a long way. But oh my goodness, it is delicious. Eat and enjoy, and if your father is still here, give him a big hug. If he's not like mine, toast him wherever he is or toast Dr. Lecter. I feel sure he wouldn't mind. 
Hell, he might even want to give you a hug in return or even cook you some liver and fava beans or even cook your liver with some fava beans. <laughs> well, that's it for this one. Chicken liver and fava bean pate is, in my humble opinion, a great example of fan art and has actually been one of my favorite literary and culinary creations yet. If you do rec recreate it in your kitchen, drop me a line and let me know how it comes out. If you're enjoying this podcast, you'll love my blog, which can be found online at www.foodandbooks.com. That's F-O-O-D-I-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. You can like me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram, the links for both, which can be found in the show notes. So I'll try to record another episode before the big move happens, but if not, I'll certainly have some new content for you sometime in late August. I look forward to telling you all about my beautiful new house and my beautiful spanking new kitchen and sharing some of my new culinary adventures with you. So signing off for today, just remember to stay well, stay safe, and wash your hands. <laughs>